So chapter 23, beginning at verse 20. The Lord says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on your way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take the sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you, and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you, until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out from before you. You shall not make a covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So I message What's in it for me? And it's a fair question to ask the first time a person hears the gospel. They've been told that in order to receive salvation, forgiveness from their sins, they need to repent. And maybe a question they might ask is, well, what is in it for me? If you're, you're calling me to repent from my life and, and give up everything that I once held dear, what's really being offered to me? And one might typically respond, well, you can escape the wrath of God. Or you will receive freedom from your bondage to sin. And those are all true. And yet, they are significantly deficient in answering the question. Really, they're just frosting on the cake of what's offered to a person with the gospel. The substantial answer to the question, what's in it for me? Is God. It's God. Now that answer might seem a little underwhelming at first. But if so, it really reflects a vast ignorance of who our Creator is. And also an ignorance of our purpose. One of the fundamental questions people wrestle with is, what is the purpose of my existence? Why am I here? They want, it, they want to know what the meaning of life is, where they're going to find significance. And the Bible explains that we were created for God, to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. He defines our significance, and therefore we're going to find our satisfaction in Him and in Him alone. 
I'll use an analogy to, to try and explain. Imagine that, the, the, you don't have to imagine all for this, take a cup. The purpose of a cup, you could say, is to hold water, to drink from. And that cup, to, to some extent, is going to be satisfied when it is filled with water. And our purpose, again, is to be satisfied in God. But to be satisfied in God cannot simply be illustrated by filling a cup with water. Because we're not dealing with anything ordinary. We're dealing with God. To really illustrate this, it would be like throwing the cup into the ocean. You were created to be a vessel for God's glory. And God does not simply offer you eight ounces of water to satisfy you. He offers you the ocean. How great is God? The ocean of glory? Take a moment with me and just consider one aspect of what He has created. I often like to go out at night and look at the stars. And when you look at the night sky, you can see a few thousand stars with just your bare eye. But it may cause you to wonder how many stars are really out there beyond what we can see with our eyes. Well, in our solar system, there is one. We're very familiar with it, the sun. And it's approximately 93 million miles away. The closest star to us, besides our sun, is called Proxima Centauri. And it's approximately four light years away. Meaning it would take four years going the speed of light for us to reach it. And if we ever approach the speed of light, bad things happen to us. So that's not going to happen. And... Those stars are a few of the 400 billion stars that are just in the Milky Way galaxy. 400 billion. But how many galaxies are there? According to astronomers, there are approximately uh, 170 billion and probably more in the observable universe. Stretching out into a region of space that are, that's 13.8 billion light years away from us in all directions. And so if you multiply the number of stars in our galaxy by the approximate number of galaxies that are out there, you get approximately 10 to the 24th power stars, or one septillion. That's a one with 24 zeros behind it. God spoke in all of that came into existence. It's incredible. And our mind can't even conceive of how big that is. He created it in an instant. This is the God that we're going to be encountering today in the book of Exodus. This is the God that brought Israel out of Egypt so that they might be a special people to Him. The creator of the universe was offering himself to them to be their God. And so they, they could be his special people. And in fact, this is the point of the Mosaic Covenant. God writes the law and provides this covenant to them so that they might be a holy people and can enjoy him and his presence and serve him. And so ultimately, when it comes to the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinaitic Covenant, 
What's in it for Israel? God. The God that created the stars and the galaxies and everything with a word. And note, too, that under the new covenant, the gospel, that's what's in it for you as well. That's what's being offered to you. There's really two main points in in today's message. Uh, The first deals with uh, chapter 23, um, and that's the blessing of God's conquest. And the second section deals with the blessing of God's presence, and that covers the... uh, consecration uh, with the Mosaic Covenant. And that's all of chapter 24. Let's look first at chapter 23. Moses writes, speaking, God is speaking here in verse 20. He says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. For my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemy and an adversary to your adversaries. So in this first section, Israel's dealing with the blessings that come from the presence of the angel of the Lord. And we've talked about the angel of the Lord before. This is none other than the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, in his pre-incarnate form. And this is made clear, especially by verse 21, it says, that God says, my name is in him. What he's saying is that all of what it means to be me, my, my authority, my power is in him. And it's because of that, obey him. Don't rebel against him. Take him seriously because he's God. And the particular blessing noted that this angel is going to bring is that of conquest of the promised land. So the presence of the angel is huge because all of the stuff that's going to be presented to them is given to them on account of the angel going before them. And you'll see that phrase repeated again and again. I'm going to go before you and I'm going to accomplish all these things for you. So God is going to accomplish all these things through the presence of the angel. None of what's offered would be given if it wasn't for that angel going before them. And it says... He's going before them to prepare a place for them. Does that ring any bells? Sound familiar? Jesus, in his upper room, said the same thing. Behold, I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. And so Christ, after leaving the disciples, went to accomplish a greater preparation than even the angel of the Lord, which was him, accomplished for the nation of Israel. This is really pointing forward to a greater place that God has prepared. Let's look at that passage, recalling that the angel has prepared a place for Israel. Again, he says... If I go and make ready a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me so that where I am, you may be too. You see the heart of God here. There's a purpose behind him making a place. 
It was, there was a purpose for Israel and there's a purpose for Jesus here too. He wants you to be with Him. That's what He wanted for Israel. He wanted to be with them, to be their God. And we should note, however, that all the blessings that this angel is going to provide for them are not without conditions. God warns that Israel needs to carefully obey what he says. He's not going to tolerate any sort of rebellion. The other side of the equation, though, is if they do follow his commandments, listen to his voice, he's going to destroy all the enemies that they encounter. So as as they come up against all the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Parasites, he will wipe them out, utterly destroy them as they come up against them. But with such victory, there's also a stern warning. As the Israelites overthrow these peoples, they are warned, destroy every vestige of false idolatrous worship as you go into the land. Notice verse 23. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars into pieces. Pulverize them is the idea there. And in doing so, God promises that he will richly provide for them. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water. All they need for sustenance. He's going to provide for it in great abundance. I will heal your sickness from among you. Verse 26, none shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. In other words, nobody's going to die prematurely. Everybody will live out their life to a ripe old age. Because, verse 27, I will send my terror before you. What this means is God's going to make the nations panic as they hear of what he's doing. As Israel continues to make conquest, God is going to drive them out. And he says, I'll throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you. Another interesting word. Probably not the best translation in my opinion. Uh, It it really, it it can be translated hornets, but I think a better translation in this... um, section is it's a state of fearful confusion, a panic. So it's, 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 it's emphasizing they're going to be terrified and they're going to panic and they're going to flee. And this is going to drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites. Verse 29, I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you, until you have increased and possessed the land. Now, this, is, this is vital and can't be missed. Israel wasn't going to take the promised land in just a few months. This, this was going to take years. It's going to be a slow and progressive accomplishment. So when they go into battle, it's not always going to be an immediate victory. In fact, there's going to be losses. People are going to die as they go to battle and they wait for all of this conquest to be accomplished. They still have to fight. 
God is not going to just simply destroy the people in the land for the purpose of victory. There's something even more to it. God wanted them to take this land and have it fully prepared for use. If, if God drove out all those people, one, they wouldn't learn to trust in him as he would desired. But secondly, the land wouldn't be ready. It wouldn't be prepared for them. God wanted them to, as they, as they enter into the land, to have all that they needed. And he wanted them to learn to trust him. What he's going to give them, he explains in verse 31. I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines. That's the Mediterranean. And from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out from before you. So what he's describing is, I think, northern Egypt, Sinai area. Um, all the way along the Mediterranean Sea, then Iraq in the east, and the Negev, Sinai Peninsula in the south. So really what he's describing is almost the whole Middle East. So when we talk about the promised land that's offered to Israel, we're not talking about a little sliver along the Med. We're talking about almost the whole Middle East. Massive land. He says in verse 32, You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. See, again, he reiterates this command, wipe out every vestige of false worship. And he explains why. Because it will be a snare to you. It will destroy you, is the idea. It will kill you. The whole point of devoting the Canaanites to destruction has to do with their wicked worship practices. A couple of verses from Deuteronomy demonstrate how bad this really was. Deuteronomy 9.5 He says, It's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's because of the wickedness of those nations that God is devoting them to destruction. In particular, their worship practices. He explains in 1229, When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in your land, take care that you do not become ensnared to follow them. After they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods, that I may do the same? You shall, not, you, sorry, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. They even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire for their gods. See, even worse than the death-obsessed Egyptian polytheistic worship that they had grown up in, Canaanite worship was especially grotesque. They practiced in their worship services pornography, bestiality, homosexual and heterosexual prostitution, and even human sacrifice were normative. 
God knew that despite the vile nature of the Canaanite worship, Israel would be drawn to embrace such practices. And because of this, he demanded that every vestige of Canaanite worship get eliminated. And such a demand is exactly what we'd expect. If a Christian wife came upon some pornographic magazines in her husband's closet, would she merely request that he refrain from looking at them? Only if she's stupid. She'd take them and immediately have them burned. Or if it was on a website, she'd make sure that no access would be given. Because as long as that temptation is there, it's going to be a snare. And it's immediate access to pornography in our day and age that is uh, epidemic in Christian households. Despite its grotesqueness, it's alluring to the extent that it's not only plaguing men, but it's plaguing women and children as well. And in order to kill the temptation, access to it needs to be cut off. Just as Israel was commanded. And if this is a temptation in your life, I strongly encourage you to get some sort of filtering device like covenant eyes or even more, just don't be on the computer when you're not being watched, when, you, when you're alone. Because that's when that temptation is going to be strong. And I assume that men here struggle with this. So if you come up to me after church and tell me that you've been struggling with pornography, I'm going to be about as shocked as a medic would have been on the beach of Normandy when a soldier approaches him and says, I'm wounded. Of course you are. You're in the midst of a battle. People are shooting at you. It's expected. And it doesn't mean that being a casualty is okay, but it's the nature of where we're at. It's the nature of our society. It was the nature of where Israel was going. As much as we don't like it, it is true. It's real. That's, our, that's the day and age that we live in. But staying on the battlefield and trying to, to fight with a gaping chest wound on your own isn't going to solve the matter. Get help. Get some help so... You can get back out there and fight. And the fact that I pick on pornography again is fitting because it was a significant aspect of Canaanite worship. And it's why God wanted the Canaanite worship sites to be eliminated. Because he knew it would be alluring. And as disturbing as it is, it is. That's why it's a problem. And likewise, we are called to be a holy people And despite the fact that evil is so normative in our culture, we need to do everything we can to keep ourselves pure. We need to make war against it. We need to be killing sin before sin kills us. As Paul says in Romans 8.13, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you make war. Kill sin before it kills you. And that's what God was telling Israel. Don't go there. 
It may seem attractive. It may be alluring. It will destroy you. And so wipe out any vestige, any temptation, any possible stumbling block. Do whatever you can to remain a holy people. So after describing the blessings of conquest that will be accomplished by the angel, God then begins to present the greatest blessing of the covenant in chapter 24. His presence. And this chapter is really a description of the confirmation of the covenant, this covenant ceremony. So the last few chapters that we've looked at in Exodus have dealt with God's explanation of how Israel is supposed to live in light of the covenant that he's making with them. The Ten Commandments and all the sundry laws that we looked at were really, this is how you live as a holy people. It was a description. So Israel's part of the covenant was to keep these laws and commandments and to be a holy people. And then God would provide all these other things for them, victory and provision. But even more than that, he's going to provide himself. Again, this chapter describes the ceremony wherein Israel embraces the covenant. In 20 through 23, you could, you could think of that as the proposal. The 20 to 23 was the proposal that God was making. Think of 24 as the wedding. If 20 to 23 were an interview, think of chapter 24 as the signing of a contract. It's kind of finalizing everything that's been presented. So let's look at verse 1. And then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So here we have Israel committing to the covenant. The first thing that God mentions is, Come up to the mountain, but remember, worship from afar. Because God's presence is on the mountain. And if they came too close, they'd be consumed. Only Moses is allowed to come up to the mountain and, and come up into the cloud where God's presence is. So God calls a total of 74 people to be involved in the ceremony and the receiving of the covenant. The 70 elders prostrate themselves and worship God, and then Moses goes up further into God's presence. Seventy elders are representative of the people. And then Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, they are representative, representative of the priests. And then Moses acts as the covenant mediator, or the high priests, who represents God, represents people to God. So the emphasis, though, of bowing down and being far off stresses that God's presence was on the mountain. This was the holy God, and only the designated mediator could approach him. Moses came and told the people all the words and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All that God has spoken, we will do. So they, they embrace it. They say, Yes, we want this. And so after receiving the law from God, Moses presents God's instructions to the people on how the covenant will be confirmed. And the people unanimously agree to all the stipulations of the covenant. Beginning in verse 4. 
Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So four major things happen in this section. The first, Moses writes down the law. So after agreeing to all the stipulations of the covenant, Moses writes all those expectations down for Israel to see. Secondly, he builds an altar for the Lord. And that altar in this covenant ceremony is going to represent God. And thirdly, Moses makes two kinds of offerings. A burnt offering, which we read about in Leviticus, represents an offering for sin, generally. And then he's also offering a peace offering, which is an offering of fellowship. So it's representative of Israel's agreement to both vertical obedience between Israel and God and horizontal obedience to one another. Again, that similar pattern that we saw in earlier in Exodus of loving God and loving people. Also representative of the whole law, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And so they're, by, by having these peace offerings, they're essentially saying, we agree to do this. We agree to pursue All that's been stipulated. So after reading the book of the covenant in full to them, which is chapters 19 to 23, everything we've been talking about the last few weeks, the Israelites affirm their desire to commit to the covenant. So Moses then takes the blood that was set aside in bowls and he sprinkles, it says throw here in the ESV, but sprinkles some on the congregation and he takes the other blood and he he sprinkles it on the altar. So this is symbolizing the commitment that they have made, similar to when you, you, you have rings placed upon the fingers in a wedding. It's the symbol that the commitment is made. They have been sanctified. They have been set apart for God. They are sealed to be His by this blood. And likewise, we'll see that when the vessels that are going to be used in the tabernacle, get consecrated and set apart for the special use of God's worship, they're going to be sprinkled with blood. Again, consecrating them, setting them apart as holy to be used only for the worship of God. And the point being is that it's through the shedding of blood and its cleansing effect that people are made holy. You cannot be holy without the shedding of blood. What is it about blood? It's that blood represents life. When you sin, the consequence is death. It has to be death. The wages of sin is death. If you had just sinned one sin, something would have to die in your place. That's what the, that's what the whole... Uh, sacrificial ceremonies were about. 
But we know that we even need more than that. To be cleansed from all of our sin. We need more than just the blood of bulls and goats to sanctify us. The only thing that can wash us pure from sin is the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 9 explains this. Go ahead and flip there in your Bibles if you can. It's a a lengthy section, but it'll explain everything that's going on here in this covenant ceremony and how it points to our Lord. Beginning at verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, which is what we just described. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. That's going to happen later. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Death must happen. That's how bad sin is. We're so used to it, we don't recognize that the consequence of sin is death. We should die. For that proud thought, death is what we deserve. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The covenant ceremony that Moses convened was pointing to the work of Christ on the cross, wherein Jesus would purify us through the shedding of his own blood. But recognize, too, the the pointer here does not end with just the cross. It goes beyond the cross. Look at verse 23. It was necessary for the copies of these heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. See, the covenant ceremony is ultimately pointing to heavenly things, even beyond Christ. Not just purification for this life, but purification so that we might exist in the life to come. That we might be resurrected and purified to be free from sin forever so that we too can live in the presence of God. It didn't just stop at Christ. It was going beyond Christ. Christ was not just purifying us for this life. It wasn't just forgiveness so that you could have God's blessings and then die. It was so that you could be in the presence of God for eternity. So because Christ has died, purifying believers from their sins, we no longer have to face or fear the facing of death. Death no longer has any sting. Instead, we eagerly await Him, as it says, because now we can enter into His presence because we have been made holy by His shedding of His own blood. Verse 27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having already been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. See how it's looking forward 
to the future. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. That's us. We're eagerly awaiting. Our hope is not just in what Christ has done. It's what Christ is continuing to do and what he is going to do for us in all of eternity. God wants us, not just now, but forever to delight in his glory. So we've been talking about what the Mosaic covenant has done for Israel. But consider what Hebrews says is in it for Christians who have the new and the greater covenant. We get God. We get God. We're glasses who get the ocean completely and totally purified from the damning effects of sins. It is finished. All the damning effects of sin in your life have been finished. They were finished when Christ took your penalty on the cross. It's done. You're free. You have nothing to fear no more. If God is for you, who can be against you? You got God. Christian, you got God. God is yours. And you are God's. It is, it is numbing to me how people can hear the offer of God in the gospel and still reject Him. It's like cups holding out for a teaspoon of arsenic when the ocean is offered to them. The ocean of living water. So they don't know. They, they think that arsenic has something in it. They're, they're, they're missing out on that poison. It's got to have something there because other people are drinking it. And they don't realize the ocean's offered to them. And not just for a moment. We're all going to die once, as it says. And after that comes judgment. But if you've been purified from sin, and you enter that holy place in heaven and stand in His presence, there will be no lack to your joy, to your satisfaction. Unending days of delight according to what you were created. Back to Exodus 24, verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as if it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and they drank. Honestly, I've read Exodus a number of times before, but I, I don't think I ever recognize this. I'm very familiar with the... the 33 and 34, where Moses asks to see God. Well, this is why he asked for it. It's because he already saw him. And he wanted more. That's how great it is. To see God was unsatisfying to Moses. In fact, we know Moses went up, it says at the end of this chapter, and was with him for 40 days and 40 nights. And he still was unsatisfied. It's amazing. They saw God. 
It's so amazing. It says, they, God didn't stretch out his hand to kill them because that's what they would expect. That's what God himself says. 1 Timothy six fifteen and 16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, he dwells in unapproachable light, light and whom no one has ever seen or can see. Then God, then, then God says in Exodus 33, when Moses says, show me your glory. In other words, I want to see you. God says, you cannot see my face because no man shall see me and live. It's that good that in an unpurified state, without a glorified body, you would be consumed by the greatness of it. It would take your life. It describes God in this, on this pavement of clear blue like the sky. Again, this is the angel of the Lord. This is the second person of the Trinity which they're seeing. And they say they see this clear blue pavement. And I think this is symbolic of God's omniscience. A similar thing is described in Revelation 4 where it says there's a, a sea of glass before him. And so God can see with complete clarity. If, if it's not that, it's that, we, that, there's no, that there's nothing hindering our view of God or their view of God here because they're now a part of the covenant. There's nothing hindering them from God. And so they have access to them in a sense. Access to him. I believe that's what's meant by the clarity of this matter. The fact that it's of sapphire, it's, it's reflective of the sky, the, the clear blue sky. Amazing. And the fact that God did not lay a hand on them to kill them shows that they, didn't, they expected to die. They saw the brilliance of this manifestation, in other words, but they didn't see the detail. They could see the radiance of God's glory, but they didn't see His face, His substance. But the astonishment continues. Not only are they privileged to see the glory of God and live, but then He invites them to eat in His presence. He invites them to eat what is known as the covenant meal. It says that they ate and they drank. And the significance of eating of the sacrifice and eating it before God it signifies the fact that peace has been made between them and God. They are in fellowship with Him now that they've been set apart to be His people. And you tie the eating of this covenant meal with the mention of the blood of the covenant in verse 8, and you realize that this covenant meal that they're having now is pointing to another meal in the future, which we're very familiar with. Look now at Matthew 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, just just imagine what he's saying here. Let it sink in. Take, eat, this is my body. I am the covenant meal. And he took the cup which he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink it, all of you. Now, of course, they don't understand what he means, that he is going to be the sacrifice that they're going to eat from. But that's what he's saying. For this is the blood of the covenant. It's not an ox this time. It's not a goat. The blood of the covenant is going to be his own blood. Imagine being in that room 
And he says that. I'm going to be the covenant. You're going to be purified through my death. Which is poured out for many. That's us. The Gentiles that get included in this for the forgiveness of sins. And that's why we take the Lord's Supper to remind us that that the covenant has been accomplished by Christ. And as we eat it, it reminds us that peace has been accomplished with God and that we've been set apart to be a holy people for Him on the basis of Christ's decisive work on the cross. And so after eating this covenant meal at the base of the mountain, Moses is called to return to God again. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I might give you the tablets of the stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. And so Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go with to them. So he, he gives... God says he's going to give them tablets of stone. So these are all the stipulations that Israel has agreed upon. And God's going to write them on stone to be a perpetual covenant. Something they could be, that, that, that would be a reminder of what they committed to. And it could be a teaching tool as well that they might teach one another. And we see in Deuteronomy that the Levites had this responsibility to teach the people, but also parents to teach their children about what it meant to follow the law. And so having it written on stone was a reminder to do so. And before he ascends the mountain, Moses puts Aaron and her in authority in his place. Joshua goes along with Moses at least partway. He doesn't go all the way, just partway. In verse 15 it says, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. The glory of the Lord dwelt. That's where we get the phrase, Shekinah glory. That's the word that's used here. Shekinah. It means the abiding glory. So this glory of God was in full view of the Israelites at the base of the mountain. And to them, it it appeared as a consuming fire on the mountain, covering it. And the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, God called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Verse 17, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So Moses ascended into the presence of God. And he was brought into God's presence. And there he served him like one of the angels before the throne, listening to to all that God is going to command them. The rest of what we're going to read in Exodus is what God is speaking to Moses. How he's supposed to, um, how the, the finer details of the Levitical priesthood, of the construction of the tabernacle, and even the other things that we read about in the book of Deuteronomy. What it meant to be a holy people. He's explaining to them. In fact, God's calling of the 74 men to come before him is really illustrative of the tabernacle. You have the 70 elders representing the people, and they could be within the, 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 the courtyard of the tabernacle. 
And then you had the priests, Nadab and Abihu and Aaron, and they could actually serve at, as, a, as, as priests. They could enter the holy place. And then you had the high priest alone that could go into the holy of holies in the tabernacle. And so as God is explaining the building and construction of the tabernacle, really what he's doing is he's explaining uh, how to bring the experience of Mount Sinai and make it portable so that God's presence could dwell within the people. And that's what God's aim is. So that he could be with his people. And as we know, this is pointing towards even a greater truth. So what's in it for Israel in regard to the Mosaic Covenant? They got the presence of God. The one who made the stars. He would dwell with them. And they had the opportunity to be his holy people. A special people to serve him. And what's in it for us in regards to the new covenant that was established by Christ? Let's look at a few verses. Second Corinthians chapter 3 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, and this is all, not just Moses, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. The same image. The same image that floored the Israelites because they they thought they were going to die. Because they saw that image. That same image is being transformed in you because God Himself indwells you if you're saved. That's amazing. You're being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another because this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Wow. We get the presence of God in us, the Holy Spirit, but that's not all. Eventually when we pass on from this life, we will be able to experience the unveiled presence of God for all eternity. And that is why Christ came to earth. That is why he took on the form of a baby at Bethlehem. That's why he lived the life that he lived and died on the cross for sins that he did not commit. was so that you, individual Christian, might dwell in the presence of God for all eternity. He, Jesus wanted you to have God. That's what he was willing to go for, go through for you. That's how much God wants you to have him. That he would send his son, his only begotten son, to take the penalty that you deserved so that you might have him. Notice what he says in John 17. Jesus himself says, as he's about to approach the cross, he's praying to the Father and he says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. That we may be one even as the Trinity is. 
I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me, and you have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire, you can see here is emotion. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given to me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants you to know God's glory. Christianity is not about just being obedient. It's not about following rules. It's about having God. And because you have God, you live as a holy people because what else could you do? You got God. What else could you want? And so when we pass on from this life, again, we will be able to experience the unveiled presence of the glory of God for all eternity. We are going to be vessels filled with the ocean of God's glory. How good will that be? Honestly, words can't describe it. I say that because of what the scripture says. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As he talks about this life which you feel. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What's all mean? Anything your mind can imagine. It'll be light. Your afflictions are light. Compared to what getting God means. You can't compare it. There's no words. And Paul can say this because like Moses, he saw the glory of God. Unveiled. Talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says he was taken up into the third heaven in the presence of God. And he says in verse 3, I know that this man, describing himself, was caught up into paradise... Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Look, how does he describe it? He heard things that cannot be told. Things which a man is forbidden to speak. You want to know what heaven's like? Man would be forbidden to tell you. Because there's no comparison. To compare it, to try and put it into words, would be degrading. But let's not simply take Paul's words for it. We can see the greatness of God's glory even in how Moses responds. Again, we've talked about the fact that he's been with God 40 days and 40 nights. He saw the the angel of the Lord in all of its glory on the mountain. He saw the glory of God as a consuming fire on the mountain as well. And still, he's unsatisfied. And we say this because in chapter 32, the covenant gets broken by Israel. The stone tablets that God created, 
You know it. He, they're, they're crushed because Israel, just days later, builds a golden calf, breaks the covenant. But in God's mercy, he chooses to renew the covenant with them. And despite the hard-hearted rebellion of his people, God shows mercy. And when God affirms his, co- his commitment to affirm the covenant, Moses asks for one thing. Moses, God had just offered Moses, you'll see this later, he says, I'll wipe out all Israel and I'll start with just you. Moses said, no, it's not what I want. There's other reasons behind that, we'll get to that later. But he, basically he was being offered more than any of us could ever imagine, that I, he, would, he would build a new nation under Moses. Moses said no. One thing Moses asked for is because of what he's already seen. He said, show me your glory. Show me your glory. As Moses tasted, Moses saw that which he had been created for. He recognized that there's not going to be anything in this life that could satisfy him. After tasting God's glory, nothing, nothing could he ask for nothing aside from that? That's what you've been created for too. And God's begun, if you're a Christian, He's begun to give you that taste of what it means to follow after Him. And if you aren't, Christianity is just something you grew up with, never been real. Ask God to show you His glory. To fill your heart, to satisfy you, to prepare you for eternity. Because that's what he wants. Realize, Christian, that's what he wants. He wants you to be satisfied in him. As Piper says, God is most glorified with us, in us, when we are most satisfied in him. That's what he wants. And you know what? When you're satisfied in God and satisfied in his glory, there is nothing, nothing that can be against you. Nothing that can be against you. It's everything to us. You were made to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So, Christian, enjoy Him now. Enjoy Him now and know that it's just going to get better. It's just going to get better. It's going to be an eternity of unfading glory and joy beyond all comparison. Show us your glory, Lord. Or we can make that statement because we see it in your word and we, and we trust Moses. We trust that he saw something, knew something that surpasses all understanding. And Lord, we get glimpses of Your glory as we read Your Word. We try to fathom Your nature and why You do what You do. And yet, God, You know we're still wanting. And we're wanting because we still live in this flesh that's drawn to temporal and... So many times disgusting things. God, we, we want to be a holy people. We want to be a, 
a pure people. Not self-righteous, God, but righteous because you've made us pure through the blood of your Son. We want to live for you. We want to live as satisfied people who are overflowing with love. And so that even when we are afflicted, we are we get back up. When we're struck down, we're not destroyed. We want to carry about in our bodies the dying of the Lord Jesus because we know that there is a heavenly kingdom that awaits us. Help us to go outside the camp. To suffer treatment even as Jesus in Christ, Jesus Christ Himself suffered. But God, don't let us suffer that just because of our will. Allow us to make such sacrifices in overflowing delight and joy. That it would be a sacrifice of praise. A sacrifice of joy that would be sincere and honest. Not trumped up to gain some temporal applause. But glory. True glory that only you can produce. We want to be a people that live for not for this world for the next to fully live out all that you've designed us for so we ask in Christ's name show us your glory Amen